please turn in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I will read from the New American Standard, uh, verses 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Paul, writing to the church there at Corinth, writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, that so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's once again see God's face for his blessing upon the word. Our Father, as we read these words, we do find them encouraging to, to us. By this method that you have extended, established and extended your kingdom, we understand that you do not use mere human ability, strength, wisdom, power, but you are God of the one who is able to take the weak things of the world and the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You establish your kingdom on the power and glory of your might, on the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we ask, as we have asked many times these days, that you would renew to us, and that you would make your power and your glory known in the proclamation of your truth. So hear us, our Father, as we depend upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. There was a time, around 1975, when my wife June and I were looking for a church home. And we ended up, for a few years, driving from Staten Island across the Gothels Bridge and across miles of heavily traveled New Jersey roads to the church where we eventually settled. It was a long trip. Sunday after Sunday, we gathered our three or four children into our car and drove into New Jersey to our church. And if there were people who would ask us where we go to church. We're living in Staten Island, near a little area called South Beach. We lived in that little area, and we travel all the way for an hour each way along the garden, along the, the turnpike or the parkway, Route 46. Some of you have made that trip a number of times to our church. 
But if somebody found out, they would ask us this kind of a question. Why do you go there? Why do you travel from Staten Island to go all the way at the time to Essex Fells, New Jersey to attend a church so far away? Well, there are a number of reasons why you wanted to go to that church. And I, I don't mind telling you, we probably did not know the best reason why we should go there. But this text tells us, tells us why, what the very best reasons are to go to a particular church. Maybe sometimes you've been asked that question. Why do you go? to City View Baptist Church. Now, people have many reasons for selecting the church where they go to. Sometimes they'll say, well, it's convenient. I know a guy, uh, I met a man who told me, well, I go I go because it's right down the block from my house. We, we, we can walk to church. I don't have to drive. I don't have to pay tolls. Walk to church. Other people say, well, the reason I go is because my friends and family are there. I like to be around my friends and family, and I, I go to that church because that's where my family is. Sometimes people say, well, it's the music. I really like the music. I like the hymns that they sing. I like their music program. I, I like their teaching. I go to that church because I like the teaching. Or I, I like the pastor. The pastor is such a good preacher. We really enjoy going to that church. Now, these things may be part of the reason why people attend a particular church. But I would be bold to assert that these are not the ultimate reason true, healthy Christians attend a particular church. And now in some of your minds, if not all of your minds, you're saying, well, what is the best reason? Why? Why do I go? To church where I go to church. Why do I go? Sometimes, you know, Christians attend a church with, that they should not attend. But the best reason, the best reason to go to a church, a particular church, is because Christ is there. That's why. That's why you go. That's why you should go. You should go to a church. Because you say, there Christ has promised to be. And when I go, and I worship Him, we meet Christ. We have communion with God. That's why. Now this, this may be a, uh, some people say, well, that's a simplistic answer. You know, yeah, there are other things that engage us. But I believe that the teaching of Scripture and the believer's experience, the true believer's experience, will support this fact. True Christians go to churches not because they have the best programs, not because they have the best friends, but because the most important person in heaven and earth is pleased to meet with his people there. And that's what, that's what we found back in the mid-1970s. We didn't know. 
what we were in for. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we met with God's people and Christ was there. Christ is there. In our text, the Apostle Paul has been describing Christians in their relationship to Jesus Christ. You'll see how my opening illustration dovetails with the text so well. When Paul wants to describe Christians, he does it in this language. They are in Christ Jesus. You see that? Paul says, by his doing, by God's work, you are in Christ Jesus. You are united to Christ. You are engaged with Christ. You meet with Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. True Christians have been united to him by faith. And they will desire to worship God with those who likewise are in Christ Jesus. They will desire to worship with those who understand that the credit for their present state goes to God, because that's what Paul says here, doesn't he? He says he talks to the Corinthian Christians, and, and let me pause to make this point. When you start reading 1 Corinthians, and you get into there, and you see all the problems that they had, you'd probably say, why would somebody go there? But, but, Christ was there. Christ was there in that difficult church. That's why Paul loved the church and labored so hard for the church, cared for the church, and strengthened the church. Christians will want to worship where people understand that the credit for their present state goes to God himself. A true healthy Christian will be uncomfortable with the idea that he is his own savior. You know, there are multitudes of people who say that about him. They don't say it in those words. But you see, they don't believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. They don't believe that the reason for their conversion is that God, God saved them by his doing. They're in Christ Jesus. But that's what Christians, true, healthy, biblical Christians understand. I'm a Christian, not because I was smart, not because there was a clever preacher, but God did it. God united me to Christ by faith. And such Christians will desire to give praise to God for his sovereign work of salvation in Jesus Christ. We have been looking at these truths in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we began to consider some of the multiple blessings because Paul not only says, you, if you're a Christian, you're in Christ Jesus, united to Christ by repentance and faith. Uh, and uh, it's God's work. that God does this. And he began to tell them also of the benefits that they receive because they are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Paul tells us that God has made the Savior wisdom to us. He doesn't just say Christ is wise, but God has made him to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification 
and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him boast, boast in the Lord. The Lord Jesus is wise. The Lord Jesus provides us with wisdom, and his grace imparts wisdom to his people. That's what Paul says. So this morning, we want to proceed with more of the blessings that are ours because we are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Again, Paul's concerned about divisions in the church. There are animosities among Christians. They're not united the way they ought to be. And Paul says, I know what causes this, and I know how to remedy this. He is indeed a wise master builder whom God has fitted to lead and guide his church. And so Paul lists certain blessings that are ours because we are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't list all of our blessings. This is, a, as, a, as it were, a sampler. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul states that God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so there are other blessings, other many other blessings, which are ours because we're united to Jesus Christ by faith. But these blessings are strategically important blessings. These blessings, four particular blessings that Paul lists, these are blessings which will prevent us from pride and schism. Pride that separates us from one another, schism that divides our the, the church, divided the church at Corinth. When we understand these blessings, we will say why we should only boast in the Lord, because that's where Paul goes, right? He says, by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who has made to us wisdom from God and sanctification, a righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I got to get the order right. Um, so that, just as it is written, Old Testament scripture, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, if this morning you are not united to Jesus Christ by faith, these things that we are considering will seem like an overstatement to you. You know, how overstatements work. Uh, they promise things that aren't true. They promise you uh, satisfaction and happiness and success and things that are not true. If you drive our car, you go down to our dealership and drive our car. Everybody will be watching you. You pull up to the uh, to the restaurant and everybody's ooing and on because you came in our car. A car can't do that. A car can get you from here to there and can get you there in style, but a car cannot fulfill all of your hopes and ambitions. It's an overstatement. But let me tell you, the things that God promises to do to those who are in Christ Jesus is no overstatement. These things are true. And the reason why you might think, well, these, this, this, what, what is all of this Mr. Duana, Brother Frank, is getting all worked up about? Well, let me tell you, if you are not in Christ, you'll not be able to appreciate the degree that you ought to 
the blessings God has promised to his believing people. You take, take the matter of wisdom that we considered last time. The matter of wisdom. You natively think that you don't need the Lord Jesus to make you wise. That is a big mistake. You think that you're pretty good, pretty good person, pretty moral. You don't go shoplifting and you don't go cheating on your taxes and you don't do this and that and the other thing. You're like the Pharisee who can go into the temple and say, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. You think you're pretty good. You think you're pretty wise. You think you're sufficient to be acceptable to God. But this is simply a symptom that you are neither wise nor good and you are unfit to stand before God. The rest of these blessings that we're going to look at this morning will help you if you pay attention to them why you need Jesus Christ. You need wisdom from God. You need the divine wisdom, not your own wisdom. The wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. But that's just one thing, because the Apostle Paul tells us in our verse, verse 30, that God has not only made Christ wisdom to us, but he has made him righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Very important realities, whether you know it or not. These are very important realities. These are things you desperately need. So let's consider uh, when, I, when I say you desperately need them, every Christian in his heart here is saying, Amen. That's what I need from Christ. That's what I receive from Christ. That's what everyone needs. Every man, woman, boy, girl. Righteousness. Just as God has made Christ wisdom to us who are Christians, he has also made Christ righteousness to us. This is the true Christians' great joy and boasting that God has given to us the righteous obedience of Jesus Christ for our righteousness. Our Savior himself stated that the happiness of his people is that they receive what they intensely long for. The happiness of Christ's people is that they receive that righteousness which they intensely long for. You're familiar with the Beatitudes. Turn please to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Where our Lord Jesus Christ tells us what the happiness of his people consists in. You have at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes. And this particular Beatitude says this in verse 6. Blessed, that means happy. That's another word for happy. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The happiness of God's people is that they receive what they intensely long for. They are happy because they receive it. Their ambition is described 
as hunger and thirst. It's no passing mood. Jesus is not talking about how you feel uh, in about uh, in about 45 minutes, maybe sooner, you'll begin to feel somewhat hungry. Then a while since your last meal. And if you skip breakfast, it's going to happen sooner. Hunger. Thirst. No uh, transient moods. No light passing moods. But these are deep, intense desires that every Christian knows. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that the reason Christians are happy, the reason, let me put it this way, to go back to my opening illustration, the reason why Christians are glad to gather with their fellow Christians in the worship of God is because their deepest desires are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and they are celebrated in the worship of Christ in the place where Christ people gather. The happiness they experience is because their intense desire is satisfied. They desire righteousness and they are satisfied with righteousness through Jesus Christ. Now, what is, you ask, well, what is righteousness? How do we define it? Well, there's a, there's a good text in simple language that defines righteousness for us. Turn, please, to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Here's where the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of God, tells us what righteousness is. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16 is talking about the difference between those who are again united to Jesus Christ by faith and those who are not. And he tells people, he says, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. People have their lifestyles and our lifestyle of sin leads to addiction. Maybe you've experienced what I did as a young boy. I would do something wrong and my mother would find out and I would get a beating for it and I'd lie in bed crying at night. Well, tomorrow's, I'm going to turn over and leave. I'm not going to do this anymore. Tomorrow I'm going to be different. The problem was tomorrow I was the same sinful, wicked little boy that I had always been. I was enslaved to sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to him. He's going to tell you that the reason you're unhappy in sin is because you want you need to do more sin. That's, that's the way Satan works. He suggests it. You do it. And you say, well, you, you did some sin, that's okay, but you'd be happy if you did more sin. More sin, more sin. That's the way Satan enslaves people. Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, the Apostle Paul tells us that obedience to God's word, God's commands, is the righteousness that Christians desire. Right? You are either a slave to sin resulting in death or you are a slave to 
obedience, to obedience resulting in righteousness. Everyone is serving a master. You're serving a master. Either you're serving sin resulting in death or you are serving God's law in obedience, the moral law of God. A Christian is someone who has been taught that the wages of sin is death. And so the Christian has an intense desire not to die, not to go to hell, but they have an intense desire for righteousness. It is a greater desire than an intense hunger or thirst. And our Lord says his people are truly blessed because this desire is really satisfied. This longing is fulfilled in at least two ways. In two ways in which this longing for righteousness is fulfilled. First of all, it is fulfilled because the righteous obedience of Jesus Christ has been given to the believer for his own righteousness. A believer has what is called, in theological terms, an imputed righteousness. He is given the righteousness of Jesus Christ for his righteousness. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. And you'll see just how the Apostle Paul himself describes this righteousness. We're talking about what righteousness is. God has made Christ to us righteousness and no better place to understand this than in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. Now, Paul was a pretty good man. He had all kinds of credentials. He had reasons why he could climb the ladder of self-righteousness. But what he says here in verse 7, but the things which were gained to me, my brownie points with God, my personal obedience, my personal spiritual credentials, whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. I throw away my sense of my self-worth, my religiosity. I count it as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But Paul, what's so good about knowing Christ? Paul's telling us, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law. Make no mistake, Paul knew what the law was. He knew that you should have no other gods besides God. He knew that you should not worship idols. They would never do that. He knew to, that uh, the will of God is that we take God's name reverently. We use it reverently. We think of God reverently. We worship him. That's all the, the law demands and all of the other commandments. Paul says, I I'm not thinking of myself as having my own personal righteousness to be justified before God with not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, that's the first way that a Christian receives righteousness from Christ. He receives the Jesus record of righteous obedience credited to his account before God. He says, my righteousness that satisfies me, which I long for and I am satisfied with now, 
It's the righteous obedience of Jesus Christ given to me by faith in him. So God and the gospel offer sinners the forgiveness of sins by the righteous record of the Lord Jesus and by his atoning death. So, we are called to live a life of conscience, conscious dependence on him. Look over in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I had written the text, but I forgot to write 1 John. And then I realized, okay, this is, what, this is what's next. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. We are to have... A dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul describes it, I have a righteousness that is imputed to me, that is given to me by Christ. Christ has been made by God for me, righteousness. And John tells the Christians in 1 John 2, 28 and 29, And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So what is it like to abide in Jesus Christ and to receive righteousness from the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice the very next verse, verse 29. He says, not only do we receive Christ's record of righteousness imputed to us, but we are transformed so that we live a righteous life. He says in verse 29, if you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. The person who abides in Christ, who is united to Jesus Christ by faith, receives righteousness, whereby he is accepted with God, and he has his life transformed. His life transformed by his union with Jesus Christ. The person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is born of God, born of Christ. And he lives not only a life of dependence on Christ for acceptance with God, but in the practice of of righteousness. So the Christian is satisfied in Christ on two counts. Number one, he receives the record of Christ's perfect obedience. Everything that Jesus did in obedience to God is credited to his account. And also he is transformed by union with Christ so that he lives a righteous life. You know that Christ is righteous? Do you know that he obeyed God's law in every count he fulfilled all righteousness? The person who abides in him also is righteous by practice. He depends upon Christ's righteousness for justification with God, but he also lives a life of righteousness like Jesus because he is born of him. A little bit further down in 1 John, 1 John tells us again that we are Living a life of righteousness because of union with Christ. Notice 1 John 3, 7. 
Little children, make sure no one deceives you. People are going to try and convince you otherwise, but this is the truth. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. You see, you might say to yourself, well, I have a righteousness in Christ. I have the record of Christ's righteousness imputed to me because I am a believer in Jesus Christ. All true. And so you say, I don't need any other righteousness. I don't need to worry about righteousness. Wrong. 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 Because the apostle tells us that the one who practices righteousness, the Christian who seeks to obey the law of God to the honor of God is righteous just as Jesus is righteous. So that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are transformed. We don't trust in our own righteousness, but we practice righteousness. We do righteousness. Christ has made righteousness to us. We are satisfied with righteousness because Jesus has secured our acceptance with God by his obedience. And he creates in us this determination to be righteous ourselves. And the two go together. Now put it this way. Not in my notes. I don't care. If you're not practicing righteousness, not perfectly, but substantially and really, and you don't have Christ's righteousness to stand before God with. And if you have God, Christ's righteousness, by which you will stand before God, on which your eternal salvation depends upon Jesus' obedience and righteousness, if you have that, then you will be a person who is practicing righteousness, doing the things that God's will expresses. So Jesus transforms our life. He gives us his righteousness. He transforms our life to a life of righteousness. And he teaches us righteousness. He teaches it by example and by instruction. He does it. He lives before us. We see the record in the gospel of his obedience to God's law. We see righteousness in Jesus Christ. We see it by his example. We see it by his precept. I don't have time this morning, but if you turn, and you might do this a good exercise this afternoon, read through the Sermon on the Mount. Read through all the places where Jesus says, this is what the Pharisees said, but this is what God's will really is. Jesus teaches us what righteousness is. So Christ is made to us because we are united to him by faith. He is made to us wisdom. He is made to us righteousness. Now you see why. Because Jesus' righteousness is given to him. I know I'm repeating myself, but I want to make sure you're not missing it. Jesus gives us his righteousness. God imputes righteousness to us. Gives us Jesus' perfect record of righteousness so that we are accepted with God and he transforms us so that we become like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, that's one of God's great purposes for you, Christian. Right? That you would be conformed to the image of his Son. Christ has made to us wisdom. Christ has made to us righteousness. Christ has made to us sanctification. Sanctification. 
This particular word, sanctification, is a process whereby God conforms us to a life of righteousness. That's what sanctification is. It's making a person holy. As a matter of fact, many of the texts in our Bible use the word holiness. It's the same word as sanctification. They're just uh, different translations of the same word. Holiness is sanctification. Sanctification is becoming holy. And this is accomplished by a union with Jesus Christ. Sanctification is a process in which our lives are transformed by the Word of God into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus prayed for us. If you are a believer here, Jesus prayed for your sanctification. I want you to see it in John 17. John chapter 17. The high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus. And every Christian must understand that the prayer of the Lord Jesus is vitally important to us. What does Jesus want? How does Jesus plead with God for his people? Well, a number of things in John 17, but this is one of them. Notice verse 14. Jesus says to his father, praying for his people, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he prays this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus wants his people to be conformed to the word of God. That's why you read our Bibles. I, I trust you read your Bible. If you're a genuine Christian, you read your Bible every day. And as you do, you should pray over those things that you read. Lord Jesus, make my life to be conformed to your word. Help me to hate sin and to turn away from it. Help me to love righteousness and to be like my Savior in righteous behavior. Jesus says to his Father, sanctify them. You, you could call it holify them. Make them increasingly holy. You see. Make them holy. Use your truth. Go a little bit further. Notice verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Our brother, our brethren were exhorting us and praying for us that we would evangelize. And Jesus has indeed sent us into the world with his message. But then the very next verse, very interesting. For their sakes, I sanctify them, my, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus says, I sanctify myself. Now, Jesus was only, always holy. There was never some point at which Jesus was not holy. So in what sense does Jesus say, I sanctify myself? What it means is this, that Jesus 
put himself in every kind of circumstance in which we are placed so that he might demonstrate what holiness is in his own life that we might be conformed to him. So he says, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. When I think about my relationship to my parents, when I think about my relationship to the government, I sanctify myself. I make sure I'm holy in that because I want my people to know what holiness looks like, what righteousness looks like, what they are supposed to be growing into as believers. When I think about money and riches and sharing, I sanctify myself, you see. I show them that money isn't the end all of everything the Lord Jesus went about doing good. He sanctified himself. That is, he put himself in every situation in which we might learn holiness so that we could be conformed to his image. Christ is made to us sanctification. He didn't need to transform himself, but he gave us an example that we would follow in his steps. And remember, that sanctification is essential to our final salvation. You see, it's like I said before, if you're not righteous, you have never received the righteousness of Christ by which your sins would be forgiven and you would be accepted with God. But if you have received righteousness from Christ, then you will be transformed into likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, every Christian must be sanctified. It's essential to our identity as Christians and to our final acceptance before God in heaven. Look for a moment, please, because I need to give you a verse. I've asserted, I must prove, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. You know, the Apostle Paul has not become a legalist. He's not abandoned faith in Jesus Christ. The, the right to Hebrews is not. But he is telling us, he is telling us how important sanctification is. God has made Christ sanctification for us, so we must be sanctified. Doesn't that make sense now? Why would God make Christ sanctification to us and then we not be sanctified? It makes no sense. The writer therefore says, pursue peace with all men and your version may say the holiness, it's the word sanctification. Take it as holiness, take it as sanctification, same thing. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And that's plain language. Christ is given to us for sanctification. We therefore must be sanctified if we're going to see the Lord Christ has made to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The last word my, I hope to get to this, this morning was uh, that word redemption. The last blessing that Paul states Christ has been made to us is redemption. What is redemption? Again, this is something that God gives every 
Christian, every real Christian, by union with Christ, by repentance and faith, what is redemption? Redemption is the purchase price our Savior paid God in order that we would be released from our sins and be accepted as God's children. That's what redemption is. It is the purchase price Jesus paid to God in order that we would be released from our sins and be accepted as God's children. Now, where in the world do I get that idea? I get it from Galatians chapter 4. Please look with me at Galatians chapter 4. Here Paul tells us about this matter of redemption. Galatians chapter 4, I start reading at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, in other words, God's appointed time, when that time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, born subject to the law of God so that he had to obey everything the law of God said on our behalf. And why did he do that? That he might redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. The Lord Jesus Christ obeyed the law of God. He was righteous. He was sanctified. And by his obedience and death, he redeemed us. The purchase price for our salvation was paid to God by the Lord Jesus Christ. We had no right to be accepted with God. We had no right to be the children of God. But, God sent the Lord Jesus to fulfill all righteousness and to pay our, for our sins so that we would be justified and we would be adopted into his family as sons. Again, Peter makes it very clear, 1 Peter chapter 1. I know I'm turning to a lot of passages, but we want to get a grip on these, uh, these great truths. Paul tells us Christ has become to us. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 18. I'll back up to verse 17 for the beginning of the sentence. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's word, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your father's. You inherited a way of thinking and a way of acting, and the most natural path is from your parents. And Paul says to these Christians, some of whom were Jews and some of whom were Gentiles, you had a way of life. He said, that's the way we roll. That's the way we kick it. This is the way we try to serve God and do our thing. And Paul says you had to be redeemed, bought back from the futile ideas of what is right and wrong and how to be accepted with God. And he says, Christ paid that price. You are not redeemed with things that perish like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus went to the cross having obeyed God's law perfectly. And there upon the cross as the spotless lamb of God, 
He shed his blood for his believing people that we might be redeemed, bought back from sin, purchased for God, set on the right course. Peter says that's redemption. That's what Jesus did for us. Of course, there is a dimension of redemption which is yet future. The Lord Jesus talked about the things that are going to be happening before he returns. And he says, when these things happen, lift up your heads. Your redemption. Your redemption. Your final deliverance from this world of sin and death. Your redemption draws nigh. So we've already been redeemed by the sacrifice of Christ, but we're going to be redeemed from this present evil age when Jesus returns. There's a dimension of redemption that Christ gives us that looks back to his life and death. And there's another element which becomes ours fully when Jesus returns. And for this, the whole world, Paul tells us, the whole creation groans and travails, anxiously waiting, awaiting the redemption of the children of God. Well, Christ, why come to church? Why worship here? Because Christ is here. And Christ has been made for us wisdom, Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. If you imagine that as a treasure chest, what riches the children of God have, the people of God have. These are the, the precious things. The world can't give them to you. The world can't enrich you enough. Christ is superlative in riches, and he gives these things to his believing people. These things are ours, if they are ours. Because of our union with Christ. And they are shared blessings, brethren. Shared blessings. They belong to all true believers. That seems like a simple statement, doesn't it? Everyone who's united to Christ by faith, Paul can say, Christ has been made of God unto us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Shared blessings. All true believers. You realize what that does? That levels all believers. There is a sense in which we all sit at the same level. Some Christians seem much wiser than others. There are differences among us. We don't want to deny the differences. But you see... In one sense, we're all alike, all the same, all the recipients of the riches of Christ. And that is what levels Christians. That's what explodes schism and pride. Because the very blessed, best blessings that Christ gives to you if you're a Christian, he has given to every other believer. Think about it. Think about Corinth. Paul can say to the Corinthian Christians, these are the things you all receive from Christ. There's no looking down at other Christians. In one sense, we can feel sorry for the people of the world, but not Christians. Because Christians are the recipients of the best blessings God ever gives anyone. 
Bunyan, in his autobiography, says when he understood the gospel, he said, I look at every Christian as those who walk about in golden slippers. Golden slippers. Rich blessings. That's what we have. All of us. All of us. Take the youngest Christian, the, the newest Christian who knows the least about the Bible. God has already made Christ wisdom to him and righteousness. That man has our righteousness. That woman as a righteousness which will stand him before God perfect perfectly accepted access to the richest blessings of eternity don't feel sorry for Christians now if you're none if you're a non-christian you're the one we need to feel sorry for you ought to feel sorry for yourself because you don't have these things and you won't be able to stand before God But the, what the good news is that these blessings may be yours. Are these blessings yours already? Rejoice greatly. Celebrate with your brethren. Congratulate your brethren. We are the most enriched people on earth. Not because we're in America, but because we are in Christ. But if that's not you, it may be. God hasn't put anything in his word and said you can't be saved. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you put your trust in him, you come to Jesus today and you say, Look, Jesus, I am a poor beggar. I'm a slave of sin. I cannot change myself. I cannot sanctify myself. I have no righteousness which will pass muster before your eyes. Please have mercy and save me. Give me Jesus Christ for my Savior, that you may give to me all of the blessings you have promised in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of things you'll regret in this life, no doubt. But one thing you will never regret is becoming a Christian. The most blessed creature on earth. This is why he preached the gospel to you that you may have these blessings which are in Christ. Let's pray. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you. We acknowledge that you have been marvelously kind to us who are your believing people. We have no righteousness of our own. We couldn't improve ourselves in such a way that we would be acceptable to you, that you would be favorably impressed with us. But we thank you that you have done the work. You have brought us to the Lord Jesus. You have made us your believing people, and you have enriched us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we give you thanks. And we pray for those, Lord, who are here, who hear this day the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we plead with you, our God, that you will open their hearts to see the tremendous riches, what it is that they can have in Jesus Christ and open their hearts to believe the gospel. Receive our thanks for your presence with us. Continue to bless us as we meditate upon these things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.